Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Currington as he shares this week's message. Take your Bibles and turn to Joshua chapter 6 as we're moving our way kind of quickly through our summer series. We're on the fifth message as we're going through Joshua 6. We're looking at a God of justice and mercy, a God of justice and mercy. Let me ask you a question, and this is a real question. I truly want to ask this, and I want to try to answer it today. Is God a moral monster? Is God a moral monster? Some believe he is. One pastor has a message entitled, All the People That God Killed in the Bible. Lot's wife, Ur and Onan, the first and second son of Judah, the two sons, first oldest sons of Aaron, Phineas and Hophni, sons of Eli the high priest. I'm thinking here right now, I don't want to be the son of a high priest right now. Uzzah for touching the Ark of the Covenant when it was falling down. Remember, he was just trying to hold the car. He didn't want it to fall and God killed him. Ananias and Sapphira for lying. God killed Herod Agrippa in front of everyone because of his, his pride. Is God a moral monster? Of course, we must not forget that it was God himself who sent Jesus to be betrayed by a friend, falsely accused and rejected by his own countrymen, then tortured and killed at the hands of Roman soldiers. Many cry out that God is guilty of cosmic child abuse for sending his own son to die. Plus, we might add that God's wrath was poured on the whole population where he killed everyone with the, with the flood except for eight people, Noah and his family. Or we think of Sodom and Gomorrah, two cities totally destroyed by fire and brimstone. Or how about all the Israelites that disobeyed in the wilderness several times? There were thousands of people who were killed by God for their disobedience. And then we consider today the Canaanites. Think of it, a whole land. God says every one of them must be destroyed. Is God a moral monster? Is he guilty of genocide? One biblical professor writes that we think of Armenia, Cambodia, Rwanda, Bosnia, Darfur, all well-known examples of genocide where entire groups of people were wiped out or almost wiped out. And these are awful tragedies that are worthy of our sorrow and grief. And it's rightly for us to read these and see these things and say, what in the world is going on? Those people are monsters, but is God a moral monster for his genocide? Critics ask, is the God of the Bible really any different? When the Israelites entered the land of Canaan, as we're about to read today, was it not that God commanded them to wipe out all the indigenous people so that his chosen people can move in? Is he not guilty of genocide? This biblical professor goes on and says, it makes me think of the famous bumper sticker quote. The only difference between God and Adolf Hitler is that God is a more proficient at genocide. For when he decides to do it, he finishes it. And I'll tell you that these accusations can set back the Christians' confidence as they consider these arguments. We begin to wonder, is God a loving, good, kind, wise God? Is he as loving as we thought? 
we're tempted to think that the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament so we can reconcile the differences between the Yahweh of the Old Testament and Jesus of the New Testament. So we we must think, well, there, there must be two different gods or two different sides, two different parts. How should we consider these difficult issues, these questions and these allegations against God? Is God good? Can we trust him? Is he a moral monster? Those are the questions we're going to look at and they're going to be answered for us in Joshua chapter 6. In last week's message, we read through Joshua's chapters 5 and, or 3 through 5 as the Hebrew children, remember, stepped into the water, the Jordan River, and it, was, and it was parted for them so they could walk across just as they did, their parents did as well, in, actually, through the Red Sea as they finally entered into the promised land of Canaan after 40 years of wandering around that desert. This crossing over began a new dangerous yet exciting new chapter in the redemption story of the Bible. And we got to remember, we're reading the story of the Bible as we read the story of Joshua where, uh, where the prince slays the dragon and wins the girl. So how does Joshua fit into that? How does God killing, uh, uh, creating a genocide in the land of Canaan, how does that fit in with Christ being crucified and our salvation? Today we're going to read of the conquest of Jericho and the fate of its people, as well as Rahab that we met in chapter 2. In this passage, we're going to read a strange battle tactics, bold declarations, strict instructions with very stern warnings, and the rescue of Rahab and her family as the walls of Jericho come tumbling down supernaturally. So with that, I hope you have your Bibles. If you don't, again, I encourage you to bring your Bibles. If you don't have one, I'd love to give you one. Make sure you have one. Some of it will be here on the monitors, but we're starting in Joshua chapter 6. Let's just read that first verse together. Before we pray, now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. So with that, Father, give us new eyes and new ears to hear this story, a familiar story, a famous one. Uh, uh, All know this story. Help us to read it with new spiritual eyes to understand what's going on here. For there are some difficult questions that arise from this story. And so I pray that we do the difficult work of reading through it, interpreting, and then apply it into our lives. Let me speak words that are edifying, building up. Let us know the difference between my words and my opinion and those that are of your words. And let us focus on those. Above all, we ask your spirit to begin reigning and working through the room. Lord, that we may respond to the way that you want us to through your word. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, we're going to go through this, this a little bit different. We're going to do a quick summary of chapter one, because many of you are familiar. How many are familiar with the story of Jericho and the walls come down? Hey, the majority of you. For those who are not, we're going to go through it enough so you can kind of understand it. First, we're going to read in verse one that Jericho had adopted a defensive position. Remember, they were fearful of Israel. They know that Israel is coming from them. And as soon as they cross the Jordan River, they're right across from, from the walls of Jericho or from Jericho. And so as we come here, they, defi- they, they have adopted a defensive posture. They, be- they are not outside, but they are inside the walls. It doesn't seem as if they developed any type of offensive strategy of putting their seasoned warriors on the outside to, to help protect. They're not, they're not going to meet them. They're just going to hide behind those walls. They're not sending out an, an army to confront them. 
Now, this could be because of the fear, as we learned in Joshua chapter 5, where it says, as soon as all the kings of the Amorites, that's the land of Canaan, who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people to cross, their hearts melted, and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. They were already defeated before Israel set foot into the land of Canaan. Before they even approached the city limits of Jericho, the people are just in despair. They recognize that there is a supernatural power. And remember, this is a time and day when, when, when supernatural and superstitious ran very rampant. Uh, everyone uh, uh, proclaimed everything had a God, from the sun to the moon to fertility to trees to all sorts of things. And to them, if your God was superior, then that means you were stronger. Or if you were stronger, I should say in reverse, you had a superior God. And so we see Rahab recognized this, but Jericho, not at this point. Or it could have been because of the confidence that they had in their walls. They were very strong. Pastor John MacArthur notes of the walls of Jericho that the city was fortified by a double ring of walls. So for you, you watch Lord of the Rings or those types of things. They had the city and then they had a, a, a one wall that went around them. And then they had a little bit of space and then another round of walls around them. They were six feet thick. With, and, and the inner was, or it was the outer thickness of six feet, and the inner was 12 feet. So this is very, very thick. Timbers were laid across these, supporting the houses on the walls. And since Jericho was built on a hill, it could only be taken by mounting a steep incline. And anyone who's ever known knows that the king of the mountain, the place to be is at the top, right? It's always difficult to, to fight upwards than it is downwards. So this, all of this would put Israelites at a great disadvantage. Attackers of such fortress usually used a siege of several months where they would build things and build up earthenworks and, and, the war and, and things and build up. And, and so they could either climb over the walls or, or, or use something like a battering ram to knock down the wall. But you're not going to do that, especially on an incline. That would be very difficult to do. Often the, the strategy was just to starve them out by surrounding them and not allowing them to come out. Now, if this was the case, that their defensive posture because of a confidence in those walls, they were in for a big disappointment. As David says, some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we trust in whom? The Lord. They had their trust in the wrong thing. And then secondly, as we continue on in this chapter, We'll read of Yahweh's declaration and instructions and look at Joshua chapter 6, verse 2. He says, see, this is Yahweh. When I say Yahweh, that, that is God's personal name. That is the I am. We use the term God, but for those of you who are new, we use Yahweh typically as I'm speaking and teaching through the Old Testament because that is his given name. He says, see, I have given Jericho in your hand with its king and its mighty men of valor. Strong declaration. In verse 3, he's getting, gives them some instructions. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once, then shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven tramp, trumpets of ram horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat. 
and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So the Lord declares outright that the battle is his and that he will provide the victory. Now, this is not to say that it could not or would not be difficult for the Israelites, that they're not going to have to fight. They're not going to have to put themselves at risk, but to give them confidence. It was to give the Israelites confidence in the face of that great wall. You can imagine as they see that city up on a hill, how in the world are we ever going to defeat that city? This was to give them confidence. Trust in the Lord. I will give it into your hands. I will give you its king and its mighty men of valor. You got to remember that these people that crossed the, the, the Jordan, the Israelites, they are sons and daughters of slaves. They have been in a couple battles, but they're, they're just children of slaves that have been wandering the desert after leaving Egypt. They've been trained somewhat. They're better than their parents. They've grown up a little bit stronger. They have a little bit more confidence, but their confidence has got to be in the Lord. He is building their trust in his goodness, in his wisdom, and his strength. Now, unlike most nations that go to war, Israel here is going to march out together warriors, priests, and civilians, including the women and children alike. And I, and I think that's a good thing. And I'm going to make an editorial note. This, this is not scripture. This is my mere opinion that I talked about. I think there's something about bringing your children to church and letting them see how you worship. He's bringing it. Why would you bring children to march around city when you're getting ready to go to war? Because God wanted to see them worship and see how God was going to give them strength. And I think that's important. That's why we, we love to include our children in our services, so they can see how we worship, how we trust in God, how we set and listen and learn. Early, the people march around silently. What a, what a sight that must have been, making no noise other than just their feet and the clanking maybe of whatever they were wearing and holding. A group of warriors go first, and then priests carrying the ark follow them. Then the people, the civilians, the women, the children, the, the, the older that may not be able to, to fight. And then there's a rear guard of warriors and soldiers behind them. That must have been a very strange sight. It must have really unnerved the people of Jericho who were looking over the window or through their windows, expecting some type of attack that they had seen many times as people had tried to attack Jericho. But all you see is people quietly walking around your property. Strange sight. And they did this for six days. In verse 15, we read that on the seventh day, they marched around seven times and were given the command to shout, for the Lord has given you this city. And when they heard the priests blow their trumpets, we read in verse 17, so join with me there, that they were giving four sets of instructions that must be followed. And, and this is key here. So you're going to want to look at this as we look at the scripture. And the city and all that is within it, Yahweh tells them, shall be devoted to the Lord. Now, again, when you see that in capital, that's Yahweh. That's his name for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute, and now that word destruction means extermination. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in the house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring great trouble upon it. Then verse 19. 
but all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So you see four stern instructions with warnings. Number one, everything and everyone was be destroyed. That word, that Hebrew word there means to totally exterminate. Everybody and everything was to be exterminated with prejudice. Number two, only Rahab and those in her house were to be spared. Only those in Rahab's house would be despaired. And they were not to take any spoils of war, which is different than usually what would happen. Is usually the soldiers would then take spoils, the gold, jewels, clothing, whatever, because that's how you paid them. But in this case, they were not to take anything from the city. All the gold, and number four, all the gold, the silver, the bronze, and the iron were to be collected then and brought to the treasury of the Lord, to the tabernacle, where they would then probably melt it and use it for different types of worship practices. So those four things are very important. Scripture tells us in verse 20 that Yahweh himself supernaturally is involved as the Israelites faithfully obey his command to walk around seven times and to shout, causing the wall to fall down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. What a miracle. I'm sure that both the Israelites and the people of Jericho were surprised and bewildered as those walls came tumbling down. The roar of the Israelites must have been frightening in the ears of those Jerichoans as they moved. I don't know if that's a new word, but if it is, I'll take credit for it. As they moved on as one to invade the city and to destroy all that was in their path. What a frightening sight. What, what the, 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 the noise. It had to have been just overwhelming as we think of the sights and the sounds. Typically, we read scripture, we don't think of those things. But here we are the dust, the heat, the crumbling of the walls, the going over the walls, the people screaming, thinking that they were confident that they were not going to breach the walls. All of a sudden, see these, these people with swords and spears coming at them. All in all, it was a good week for the Israelites. While it was the end of the city of Jericho, and all of its inhabitants. Now, I want to take a moment now then as we just looked at the summary of that, observe several things that are going on. We need to consider what this passage is teaching us. Too many times we make the mistake of putting ourselves into the action. You know, I, I do that as I read the Bible, you know, especially the ones of action. You know, I'm David, you know, I'm Daniel, I'm Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know, I, I'm Noah, you know, and I'm Joshua. I'm one of those soldiers ready to attack. We fancy ourselves as Joshua taking the charge. The nation of Israel righteously and obedient, obedient following the Lord's commands. That's, that's, that's me. That's what I would be doing. We see our enemies as the wicked people of Jericho. Or we see our problems as a wall that must tumble down. However, here's the key. If you want to understand the word of God, you need to understand this of utmost importance here is that you and I are not the heroes of the Bible. You and I are not Joshua and Israel in this story. You are either a Jerichoan, a resident of Jericho, or you're Rahab and her family. You are not David, you're Goliath and the Philistines or those, those Israelites that are afraid to step up. 
You're not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You're one of their friends thinking, boy, that's not me. You're not Daniel praying out the window. You're thinking, making excuses. Well, the government, Romans 13, obey the government. We can't have church. We can't pray. See, we're not the heroes of the Bible. We're typically the ones on the other side. Now, the conquest and fall of Jericho's mighty walls are not about us. You will not find yourself in there as much as you look, unless your name happens to be Joshua or Rahab. We have to remember that Joshua is more than just a history book of the early days of the nation of Israel. And that's typically how you and I take it. It's an Old Testament book. It's a story of a people far, far, far away. You know, it's, it's like Star Wars, you know, long, long time ago, whatever. The book of Joshua, Joshua, excuse me, though, was breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work that God has created us for. So the book of Joshua is God revealing himself to us in advancing the story of the Bible. Of the prince who slays the dragon and wins the girl. We need to understand that this here is a redemption story. I would almost uh, uh, title this the gospel according to Joshua. You see the gospel is found in the story of Jericho. We see the gospel. The theme of Joshua is for the children of Israel to be strong and courageous, not because of their strength, their numbers, or their fighting ability, but due to the faithfulness of God. In the same way, our salvation is not based on our goodness, our strength, or our heritage, but it's based on the faithfulness of God. It is God who leads, directs, and battles for his people. They are just called to obey. So what we see here in this chapter, if you're taking notes, is God's faithfulness to his promises. We've been talking about, that's what Joshua has been. God is faithful to his promises of justice and mercy. That's what we see here as we look at the tumbling of the walls. God's justice, God's mercy. First, God demonstrates his justice in verse 24. And I want you to read this along with me again, silently. Look what Israel does as as the walls come tumbling down and they run into that city. In verse 24, it says, they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Now, here's the thing. We go on, only the silver and gold and the vessels, the bronze and irons, they put in treasure of the house. But have you ever considered that phrase, everything in it? What does that include? Everything in it. Well, the houses, yeah. The buildings, yes. Uh, the carts, yes. But it includes the animals. It includes the warriors who are advancing as well with swords and spears to defend their homes. It was the mother maybe holding her child that Israel had to come. Could you do that, by the way? God said to exterminate them with prejudice. Kill them all. The baby that's in the little nursery was to be exterminated. Everything in Jericho was to be destroyed. Now, this is where we get into some difficult conversations and we stop. We typically don't even think of that. We just think, oh, yeah, God God, God tell everything, everything. But we don't think about the human in there. We don't think about the conflict. 
You need to consider that Jericho is filled with real people. These are real people who lived at real times. They were people with dreams and aspirations and hopes very much like you. They loved their children. They loved their wives. They wanted to grow up. They wanted to build things. All of that totally wiped out. Their occupation, their homes, their children, their families. Everything they worked for for generations was totally devoted to destruction. Their properties, their lands, and their farms were then given over to those who had not bought, who had not lived there, nor planted. All of it gone and given to a foreign people who had not lived there, ever other than Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who actually just traveled as nomads around the land. To many people, this thought is unjust. And I understand it naturally, humanly. I just think about that. This seems very, very unjust. Just this past weekend, during our own observation and celebration of our country's independence, July 4th, there were those who were accusing that the land of the United States was stolen from indigenous people and that the people of color are still enslaved and they cry out for justice. This past year, we've seen our streets overrun by those demanding justice for what they consider as unjust. We ourselves are shocked as we read of the treatment of the Uyghurs in China. They are forced into slave labor. They're sterilized and taken from their lands. But if you and I are shocked and complain of these behaviors that you and I read today, then what are we to make of a God who commands the wholesale slaughter of a whole group of people? We got some explaining to do. We need to understand this God who, did, who declared it. Now to understand God's justice in his command to devote the whole Canaanite people to destruction, we must understand some uh, several important facts. And, and these slides I'm about to show you come courtesy of the American gospel, Christ crucified. Here's what you and I need to understand. Number one, that God is holy and righteous. God is holy and righteous. The angels sing in Isaiah 6, 3, Holy, holy is the Lord. The whole earth is full of his glory. The psalmist sings, Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God. We just sung here, He is holy. That means that God is holy. Is that He's separated from sin. He is pure. He is clean. He can't be tainted with sin. The second thing we need to understand that God is just, that God is just. That means that he is righteous, fair, good, and virtuous. That he is righteous means that all of his decisions and actions, even the wholesale slaughter of a people, is perfect, good, and wise. Now that's difficult to understand. God's moral perfection means that he is without sin or moral blemish and that all of his decisions and judgments are perfect. But here's one that we forget many times is number three. is that God is wrathful. He is a God of justice. That means that God intensely hates all sin. 
Sin is our failure to conform to God's moral law in our actions and our attitudes and our natures. It means that it's not just our things that we do, our actions that are bad, but it's the attitudes behind them. And so you and I can sin because of our attitudes. We do only that which we want to do. But it's not just our attitudes. So we can say, well, let's change their behavior, right? Their actions. So let's change their heart. But the thing is, our very nature is sinful and does not conform to God. So within us, there is no ability or desire to please God. A leopard can't change his spots, right? Because that's his nature. So you and I should not be surprised when sinners act like sinners. This is so important for us to understand. Our first parent, Adam and Eve, rebelled and rejected, uh, rejected God's word. And it plunged the whole world into sin and under the curse of death. And you say, but this is not fair. Well, they stood in our place. In their sin, we too are now found guilty. And the wrath of God is his expression of his holiness. It's how he shows us, demonstrates that he is holy. For he cannot be neutral towards sin. And you and I understand this. You and I are not neutral to to crime. We should not be. I doubt there's too many here that want to defund the police and get rid of criminals or uh, courts and things of that nature and just let everyone go free. We would say that's unjust. Crime must be penalized in the same way sin is a crime against the holy god now understanding those attributes of god those three things we now can state here very clearly that you and i must understand this about the canaanites they were not innocent victims of a manacle moral monster but sinners that deserved the judgment and punishment due to their sins Many times as we consider this and people make those accusations, we never consider that the Canaanites themselves were very, very wicked people. They are not innocent victims. Moses pointed out in scripture that those living in Canaan were doubly guilty of gross sins against the almighty holy creator. Their moral corruption was complete with sexual sins, including homosexuality and child sacrifice. In Leviticus, we read that Yahweh says, you shall not do as they do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I'm bringing you. He goes on to say, you shall not give any of your children to them after Molech, so profane the name of the Lord your God. Seeing here on the monitor, Leviticus chapter 18, he says, do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things. What are those, any of those things? The things that the Canaanites did in their land. He says, for by all these, the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. The land has become unclean. Why? Due to their sin. So that I punish its iniquities and the land, look at this, vomited out its inhabitants. God is declaring of those Canaanites, those people of Jericho, even that little baby, they must be vomited out. I can no longer handle the taste of them. Turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 20, if you would, real quickly in your Bible. Just one book, if you're in Joshua. Many theologians and pastors and other biblical teachers are now downplaying the immorality of our age. 
They try to minimize the impact and sinfulness, sinfulness of sexual behavior of people and the decisions of people. Even so far to say is that God whispers against sexual sins. In other words, God doesn't shout about it. He just says, well, stay, you know, that's, that's not good. You shouldn't do that. However, as we read in verse 16, Deuteronomy 20, that Yahweh instructs Israel that they are an abomination to him. He says, but in the cities of the peoples that the Lord your God has given you for inheritance, the land of Canaan, you shall uh, alive nothing, you shall save alive nothing that breathes. You shall not save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to what? Complete destruction. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices they have done for their gods. So you sin against the Lord. He says, if you save any of them in the land, your children will grow up with them and they too will then adopt those practices. We've already seen that in, in numbers as they were in the wilderness that they begin to do things that people around them did. God says every one of them must die. It's also good to be reminded that Yahweh has every right to give and take life. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 6, we learn that the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol, the grave, and he raises up. You see, God is sovereign over all of his creation. Theologian Michael J. Kruger, in an article entitled, Is the God of the Bible a Genocidal, a genocidal Maniac? He notes that God is holy People are sinful, the world is broken, and his judgment is just. He goes on to write these three things. You'll see them here on the monitor. Number one is you and I need to recognize that every human being on the planet deserves God's judgment, not just the Canaanites. You and I are guilty of the same sin as the Canaanites, whether it's sexual immorality or it's giving our children abortion. What is that? It's giving our sons and daughters over to Molech. Instead of putting him on the sacrifice of fire, we do all sorts of things that I just won't even mention here. Out of worship convenience. Number two, the timing of God's judgment doesn't always match human expectations. Why does he kill them now? We know that the penalty of sin is death. So why doesn't God just allow them to continue to go in their sin and eventually let them die just of an old age or maybe some disease? Well, in Genesis chapter 15, we read this. The Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offsprings will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. Speaking of Egypt. And they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterwards, they shall come out with great possessions. And as for you, you shall go to your father in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And you shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. In other words, God sets a time for how long he's going to allow people to sin against him. If we were to go back further in Genesis and we see in the day of Noah, he says, I am going to tolerate people for just 120 years and then I'm destroying the whole world with the flood. So Noah builds the ark while he preaches for 120 years. Repent. Come to the Lord. 
but only he and his family do. In this case, he says, I'm going to give them four generations to repent. And then I'm going to take justice. It's the same thing for you and I. Our judgment may be different, but judgment is coming. The Bible said it's appointed unto man once to die. Then after this, the what? The judgment. In this case, judgment came a little bit quicker and a little bit sooner. Sometimes it comes a little bit later. And number three, the third point, is God uses a variety of instruments to accomplish his judgment. He may use cancer. He may use a car wreck. He may use old death, uh, just old age. Or he may use whatever he has in his arsenal, which is any and everything he could be creatively think of, to cast ju- a judgment on us. We will see that he will use nations many times in the Old Testament as judgment. Israel themselves will be judged by by the Babylonians and then the, the Persians and then the Greeks and then the Romans. God's judgment comes in a variety of different ways. But judgment does come. As difficult as this thought is, Dr. Kruger concludes by noting that it is here that we come to a key difference between the Canaanite conquest as we think of what's going on, the genocides of the the Canaanites and modern day genocide. He says both involve a great loss of life and both involve human armies. But the former is done as an instrument of God's righteous judgment, whereas the latter is humans murdering others for their own purposes. So for those who would accuse our God of being a moral monster, we need to put things in perspective. On the surface, there may seem to be similarities, but they're decidedly not the same act. So you and I must realize that this command to complete destroy everything and everyone was limited to the Canaanites only. This did not happen to all the cities around Canaan. In Deuteronomy chapter 20, the Yahweh instructs them about the cities that were further from them. Samaria, uh, Samaria, Lebanon, those other areas. He says, when you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer it terms of peace. However, they were not to offer terms of peace for those that that lived in the land of Canaan. Now, one other fact is you and I need to consider is that God condemned the Canaanites to judgment via destruction. And we see that. That's that's a very tough, difficult thing. And we need to consider what that means. But you also have to understand is that God did not condemn all the Canaanites to judgment and extermination. You read this with me. You see that God instead demonstrated mercy to Rahab and her family. So in Jericho, you you see God's justice, but also you see his mercy. Look at verse 25. But the Rahab, the prostitute in her father's household, and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent out to spy. Now, as you recall from our message two weeks ago, that Rahab had confessed to the two spies that I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us. For the Lord your God, he is God of heavens above and of all the earth beneath. Please swear to me by the Lord that, uh, by that Lord, that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house. 
So what's the difference here? Why is it that that this little child is killed next door, but Rahab receives mercy? She had heard the same reports as everyone else. She was just as much a sinner as the rest of the Jericho. Remember, she is always identified as the prostitute. She was guilty of lying and treason against her own people. What made Rahab special? Why did she receive mercy when others did not? She was from Jericho. She was a Canaanite. The answer is simply this. Faith. Faith. The writer of Hebrew notes in Hebrews 11.31 that by faith Rahab, the prostitute, even here she's named by her sin, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. What we see in this passage is that mercy is given to those who repent and turn in faith to him. And this is the wonderful news of Jericho. This is the gospel in Joshua. Again, you must remember, repentance is a turning away from our sin and pursuing the holiness of God with a faith that is a confident expectation that God is faithful to his promises. This, again, is wonderful news. It's the good news. We actually see the gospel of Jesus Christ is actually demonstrated here in the book of Joshua in the tumbling of the walls of Jericho. Now, this points to Romans chapter 3, 23. You'll see it here on the monitor where Paul writes, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is all of us. Doesn't matter your age, how old you are, or how new you are. We are all sinners. But we are all justified by his grace as a gift. Again, justified means that we are declared right by God. Not made right by God, but we're declared right by God. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. That is an important verse in your Bible. That word propitiation is one of those big $50 words. But we must not lose that word. It's so important. But God put Jesus as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This will show the righteousness of God because in his divine forbearance, look what he says, he has passed over former sins. Why did God wait four generations to destroy the land of Canaan? Because he was waiting for Rahab. Why? Because Rahab would be the great-grandmother of King David. She will be in the lineage of Jesus Christ himself. God could not destroy Jericho for their sin until Rahab was rescued. And see, that's the mercy and the gospel. God has not come because he is still forbearing our sins that we may repent. Now look at that key word, repent, uh, 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 excuse me, propitiation. God's wrath must be satisfied. That's what it means. God is holy. God is just. God is wrathful. Justice must be meted out. If God did not have justice, he would be an unfair God. I could not serve him. You could not serve a God who was unjust, who allowed sin to go unpunished. But what he did is what we see here is that Jesus absorbs the wrath of God that was rightly due to Rahab. 
while the residents of Jericho rejected the one true living God. They had all the same information as Rahab, but only Rahab repented of her sin and trusted in the Almighty God. Now, is this fair? Is this justice? Again, we go back to God's moral perfection, that God is just and all his decisions are pure and just and right and good. Through the gospel, God demonstrates his love. You'll see here as we look at the monitor. It's not only do we see his wrath and his justice and his righteousness, but we also, we see he demonstrates his love here in the falling of the walls and the extermination of this people. You still see God's love in which he eternally gives of himself to others. Now, again, I want you to see something that we've been sharing in the American, this may, uh, in the American gospel. This is going to be familiar to some of you from two weeks ago. Can you go to that first slide, Ben? Here's the gospel. Is that all have sinned and the wages of sin is what? So you see that you and I sin and justice demands that we die. That was God's plan right from the beginning, Genesis 3. If you eat of this tree, you shall surely die. So you and I, then the gospel tells us that justice must mean that sin, that dies, something must die. But look at the next one. Here's what we see what happens to Rahab. And this is what happens to those. Sin still happens. But what happens is at the cross, justice comes and makes a turn. And justice is done when Christ bears the wrath of God. Justice completed, but averted for you and I. Rahab stood in the gospel. The rest of the Canaanites stood in their sin and rejection of the Almighty. So here's the question as we continue. Is the God of the Old Testament the same God of the New Testament? Yes. He is both holy and righteous in the Old. He's both holy and righteous in the New. God is just in the Old. He is just in the New. In the new. We are all sinners and deserve his judgment. But is he a moral monster guilty of genocide? Is he a cosmic child abuser for putting his own son to die on the cross to be tortured and rejected? The answer is simply no. You see, Jesus provides what God, what God required. He requires a sacrifice. He requires death. But Jesus absorbed for us. That's the picture that the walls of Jericho actually teach us. So now that we understand that passage, at least I hope you do, and you understand the text and its purpose, how does this adventure, this picture of the day in life in Jericho, how does that serve to make you and I complete and equipped for every good work? Over the years, there have been many weird, (laughs) wrong, and creative applications of this passage. And it's usually centered on the Lord's strange battle strategy of marching around the walls of Jericho. You have heard this. I might have been uh, guilty of teaching this. Uh, Pastors or teachers will point to the faith and courage of Joshua, which is good because we do read that the end result of of this battle is that the Lord was with Joshua and his fame was in all the land. But you and I are not Joshua. We're not called to do what Joshua was called to do. They will, they will point out the obedience of the nation of Israel, and we should obey God. 
and following strange orders. So you need to understand that we need to then follow strange orders from God. As the Bible tells us that my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither my your ways, uh, my ways, your ways, declares the Lord. So we need to recognize that sometimes God is going to ask us to do strange things. And if we don't understand it, we need to do it. Well, okay, that's a good moral lesson. I mean, that you could say that about your parents. You could say it about, about your employees. You know, you can say that about the IRS tax documents. I don't understand what they say. Their ways are much different than my ways, but I need to obey whatever they're telling me to do. Some, though, will focus on the strength and size of Jericho's walls and ask, what is your wall? Or they focus on how to overcome the tough obstacles in your life. One pastor asked this in his message. What is the equivalent of Jericho in your life today? What's keeping you from your promised land? We all have them, don't we? Imposing our obstacles that stand in your way. Yours may relate to your job, your finances, your ministry, your marriage, your children, your family, your physical health, your relationship, your stage in life. But we all have them, don't we? So the whole thing of the message is this story in the Bible is all captured so that you can see your walls crumbling down. So now we see Christians marching around abortion clinics and government buildings and everything else seven times playing music, waiting for the walls to crumble down. But again, this message is not about you in that regard. It's about God and God's faithfulness to his justice and to his mercy. Turn to Romans chapter 2 and we are almost done. These are all fine and dandy, but unfortunately they put the focus on the wrong thing. Instead, this passage is to remind us of God's justice and mercy for two reasons. So that you may fear him, repent of your sin, and turn and trust him. The Apostle Paul warns us in verse 1 of chapter 2 that we have no excuse. He says, every one of you who judge, for you pass judgment on another, you condemn yourself. We look at the Canaanites and say, well, I'm not as bad as them. Look how bad they are. We look at the world and say, well, look how bad the world is. I'm okay. But he says in verse 2, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. He says, do you suppose, O man, you who judged those who practice such things, yet you do them yourself, that you will not escape the judgment of God? Verse 4, underline this in your Bible. You need to know this verse. Memorize it. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Let me tell you, if you are born, you are a sinner who will one day face a wrathful God, his judgment. And his kindness in giving you breath and giving you the function of your liver and your heart, every moment that you're above this earth, Every time that you spend with your children and you enjoy this life is God's kindness that you may see him and repent. But because of your heart and impotent heart, verse 5, you've rejected that and you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, on the day of wrath when God's righteousness will be judged. And make no mistake, for in verse 6 he says, He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. To the Rahabs of this life, 
But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. My friends, my plea for you today is see that God is holy and just, but he also is wrathful. And one day his full wrath of his full portion of his wrath will be poured on those who have rejected him. But I want you to understand that Christ has absorbed that on the cross. Would you come to him? Recognizing that religious ceremonies, religious observances, doing good, feeding the homeless, feeding the hungry and helping the homeless. All these works of charities are good things, but they fall short of the glory of God. You must recognize that they have no saving power. It's only in faith. But then to the Christian here today, you need to be reminded that God still calls for a genocide today. Scripture warns the Christian in Colossians chapter 3, you'll see it here on the monitor. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two, you once worked when you were living in them. With extreme prejudice, you and I must be killing sin. You'll see the next one, one of my favorite Puritans. He says, you must be killing sin or sin will be killing you. That's happened to Jericho and the rest of the Canaanites. They did not kill their sin. They enjoyed their sin. It was their purpose. It was their identity. That sin cost them their life and their soul. Let us with joy accept the mercy of God in escaping his wrath to come. For his justice has been done as he poured it out on Christ. And let us worship the faithfulness of God in providing all that was necessary to accomplish his justice and mercy. Let me end with this. Deuteronomy 32. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to his name, or to our God, the rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice of God of faithfulness without iniquity. Just and upright is he. That was the God of Rahab. Rahab received mercy while the Canaanites received rightly what they deserved. Let's make sure that we stand on the side of Rahab this morning. If you have questions about that, we'd love to share with you how you too can know uh, whether or not you are one of Christ's children and how you too can come to know that you have eternal life. With every head, bed, uh, every, every head bowed, every eye closed, I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. I'm going to ask Landon. Uh, Don, if you can come on and help him real quickly. Oh, you got it? Okay. I'm going to ask Landon to come up. I want us to take a moment to just pause and consider this passage because it might have been new for some of you. You've never heard the story or maybe I, I took a different tack than you have heard before. You've never seen the gospel in the crumbling and tumbling of the walls of Jericho. I want you to pause and consider God's justice and God's mercy. And then I want you to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to work in your life. Maybe you're here today and you need God's mercy and you're calling for it today. Or maybe you receive mercy and maybe it's time for you to put sin to death. In any way, would you respond however the Holy Spirit is working in your heart? Andy, would you come and close this? The pastor's prayer.
We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.